Good morning, everyone. This is a little embarrassing to actually say out loud, but I am a person who actually cares about what's cool and, you know, being cool and all that stuff. But that said, I've long had to kind of laugh at what being cool really is, you know, because we're, we're told being cool, it's about, it's about being yourself. It's about not conforming to society. So you have all these cool people being themselves, not conforming to society, and instead conforming to all those around them who are not conforming to society. You know, like you go to some hipster spot, like up where I live in Costa Mesa, Portola Coffee, that's kind of been the hipster spot du jour for the last number of years, and you go there, everybody pretty much looks the same, everybody has a, a MacBook and facial hair, flannel, boots, I mean, I, I love it, that's, I would be, I'm not making fun of it, I'd be totally hypocritical if I were, I, I think it's great. I, my only point is, very, very, very few people actually have their own identity. Everybody's really imitating someone in some way. So my question this morning then is, who are you imitating? And I get that question from the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians, which we're going to be studying this morning. And as we consider this subject of, of imitation, really kind of the, the overarching subject that we're going to be considering this morning is living the gospel out in our lives, which directly has to do with who it is that we're imitating. So our focus this morning is really just going to be on verses 5 through 7 in this first chapter, but I'm going to begin from the beginning of the chapter just so we can kind of get the flow of Paul's thought here. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake." You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So as we read in in verse 1, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica. They had first come there preaching the gospel on Paul's second missionary journey. The gospel was received. A church was formed. And so he's thanking God about this report that he had received, that the gospel is alive in the Thessalonians' lives. But then Paul offers this, this rather startling proof of the gospel being alive in these believers' lives, and that is their imitation of him. That was, that was the proof that they were imitating him. This is really startling and challenging for us because in verse 5, Paul talks about how the gospel had come to them not in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The power of the gospel had come, not the power of Paul. But then in the second half of verse 5, Paul mentions something else that's absolutely vital. The convicting and regenerating power came not only through the word preached, but also through that word being lived out by those who were preaching it. So much so that in verse 6 he says, 
They were, he, he knew they were saved because they were imitating him, the way they saw Paul and his fellow missionaries live their lives. So Paul came not only preaching the gospel, but also living the gospel he was preaching. Now, as we get into this this morning, I just want to say up front, at, at no point do I want anybody to think or, or mishear me saying that, that I'm agreeing with that oft-repeated Fran, St. Francis of Assisi quote, preach the gospel at all, at all times and if necessary use words. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I have heard that relentlessly. I've read that constantly. People have said that to me. Maybe you've said that to people. I just have a couple significant problems with it. The first is at this point, scholars have proven almost as surely he never actually said that. But secondly, and far more important, I would argue it's really not biblical. People are saved by hearing the Word of God preached, not just are living like Jesus. Even Jesus didn't just live like Jesus. He preached the gospel. But that said, I do have sympathy for that, that sentiment because I think it's probably trying to correct another wrong, and that is preaching right doctrine, but then not living lives that are backing that doctrine up. And that is not biblical either, as Paul makes reference to here in relation to imitating him, not just repeating his doctrine. And, and by the way, he doesn't just say this here. He says this over and over and over. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians 4.16 I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Philippians 3.17 Brethren, join in following my example. Philippians 4.9 The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. And then he says it again here in verse 6, You also became imitators of us. And so like I said, this is startling because this isn't something that's, that's just for Paul. We can't say, well, you know, Paul, he, he was an apostle. Of course he could say that. No, th- this is for all of us. We are all called to imitate God before the world, as it says in Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God. As beloved children. Like Paul, we are to imitate God, and then we should be able to say to others, Imitate me as I imitate God. That's what we're supposed to do. Can we say that? I mean, honestly, are those words that would ever come out of your mouth as you're sharing the gospel with a friend and then you get through with your gospel presentation and you you follow it up by saying, Okay, now watch the way I live my life and do that. That's, that's pretty intimidating, admittedly, but again, that's really what we must be able to say because this is an important part of the power of the gospel alive in our lives. I, I heard the, uh, the great scholar D.A. Carson tell a story of his being in, in uh, college, in undergrad. He was, I think he was pursuing a science degree or something. At this point, he wasn't yet the amazing theological scholar he became. But he, he felt led to start a, a campus Bible study at, at the university he was attending. And he said, you know, didn't really know what he was doing. He was kind of freaked out by the whole thing. He was afraid people were going to ask him questions that he couldn't answer, which is, if you know D.A. Carson, it's funny to think of him not being able to answer questions. But that, that's kind of where he was at this time. And lo and behold, his, his worst, worst fear came true. Fifteen people showed up that first week, and then a couple of these students had some questions that, that he couldn't answer. One was, you know, sort of a skeptical, agnostic college student who kind of questioned the existence of God and kind of that line of thought. And the other was raised in a liberal Christian family. He had kind of a whole bunch of challenges. And 
Like I said, he couldn't answer the questions, but he knew uh, he had a friend on campus who was pursuing some sort of a theology degree and felt like he'd be able to help, so he brought these guys over to his friend's dorm room. And so they all arrived, and the theology student, you know, basically turned to the agnostic and said, so what's your question? And he kind of posed, you know, his challenge to the existence of God and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and the student just kind of just dismissed him out of hand, just saying, I don't have time for endless theological debates. You know, if you really want to pursue the truth, that's great. I'll talk with you, but otherwise I don't have time for that. Next. And D.A. Carson is like, oh, man, I brought him to the wrong guy. This is not going to turn out well. So he, he uh, says to the other guy, what's your challenge? And he says, you know, I grew up in a wonderful Christian family, liberal Christian family, with, with wonderful Christian parents. You're conservative. I'm liberal. You say those two things are worlds apart, almost like they're different religions, but I don't really understand the difference between the two things. So what's up? You know what his answer was? His answer was not almost assuredly what my answer would have been. He didn't go into a defense of the deity of Christ, a defense of the virgin birth, a a defense of the bodily resurrection of Christ. All things liberals would deny things essential to our faith. I'm sure he got to them, but what he said was, you know what, my my roommate just moved out this semester, so I've got an extra bed in my room. Why don't you live with me this semester, move in, and just watch me and how I go through my life, and you'll see the difference. That's pretty shocking. I'm sure that guy was pretty shocked by that. might shock us too. But again, that's what we must be able to do. As we live to proclaim the gospel, we have to preach it relentlessly in the power of the Spirit, absolutely. But we also must live it out in front of the world, also in the power of the Spirit. You know, we we live in a a time where so-called drive-by evangelism, you know, sort of hitting someone up we don't know, we're likely never going to see them again and giving them the gospel. Maybe that's not going to take effect like it used to. Now, it still can for sure. We still should be looking for those opportunities. We absolutely can meet someone we've never met before, give them the gospel, and never see them again, and they could be saved. We should be doing that. But it, it may not take the effect that it did in, like, say, 1940, when we just kind of had, you know, 90-plus percent of Americans would claim some sort of affiliation with some Christian denomination. So there was just this kind of shared Judeo-Christian understanding. But, but that's gone. That, that's no longer the case in our country. So more often than not, people likely are going to be saved uh, by being in relationship with Christians, so that they're not only hearing us preach the gospel, but they're also seeing this stark difference between how we live our lives and how they live their lives. And I've actually heard recently a number of um, fairly prominent evangelicals that came out of very, very dark circumstances because of exactly that. They had relationships with Christians who preached the gospel regularly, but over time really saw the difference in how they lived their lives. And of course, this gets even more personal for those of us who are parents when we realize it's the same thing with our kids we have to intentionally be bringing up our children to know the truths of God's word that doesn't just happen we have to intentionally do that we don't abdicate that responsibility to the church but again equally as equally important as teaching our kids right doctrine is our kids seeing that truth alive in our lives and if they don't many will abandon the truth that they grew up with and many have done exactly that I came across an interesting article in The Atlantic a while ago, a secular publication, but it was about 
uh, a guy, he was an, an apologist, you know, just a passionate, passionate follower of Christ, defender of the faith, and, and he was kind of troubled. I don't know if you guys have ever read the statistics of, of uh, kids who grew up in churches, and by the time they get to college, the percentage of them that have abandoned the faith that they grew up with, it's, it's frightening. And so he kind of wanted to get a hold of this, and, and uh, he got a bunch of these students that claimed to have grown up in the faith and had abandoned that faith and just interviewed them. And I, one of the things that made the interview so interesting was his intention at this point wasn't to argue with them. He really just wanted to get firsthand information from them to pass on to the church. So we're not making assumptions about this. So we actually hear what they are saying so that when we're raising our own kids or when we're witnessing to them, we understand we're not just making our own assumptions. And because of that, maybe it seems like they let their guard down a little bit and, and spoke very honestly. And you can imagine there were multiple reasons why these kids claimed to have left the faith. Many of the things we would probably think of, things like, you know, my church wasn't serious. It was just all fun and games. Of course, there was a bunch of, you know, sort of rational scientific arguments. Uh, couldn't find serious answers to my serious question, either from my parents or pastors in some cases, all of which are pretty tragic. But he didn't stop there. He, he dug further into all of these responses and found kind of a unifying theme underneath most of what these kids were saying. And he summed it up like this. He said, these students were, above all else, idealists who longed for authenticity, and having failed to find it in their churches, they settled for a non-belief that, while less grand than its promises, felt more genuine and attainable. I again quote Michael, college student. He said, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life, and you would want to change the lives of others. I haven't seen too much of that. Now, we can react to that with... A lot of really good arguments, like we need to take the Bible seriously and take preaching seriously, and we certainly should take apologetics seriously. We, we should be able to answer our kids' questions, and, and so on. We could say, well, they weren't really saved to begin with. We could say, this is the, the, you know, this is the old, everybody's a hypocrite but me, canard. And all of those things may be true, but if we're making those arguments just to kind of make ourselves feel better and move on as if that can't happen here to us, to our kids well, then we're missing a pretty significant conclusion. And that is for almost all of these kids in one form or another, at the bottom of their leaving the faith was not seeing biblical truth alive in the lives of those who were professing it. We should be able to answer our kids' hard questions. But they should also see a changed life as a result of the truth that we profess. And when it comes to our kids or our unsaved family members, co-workers, friends, strangers, as we live out our commissioning, they must hear us proclaim Christ and His Word and proclaim it accurately. That has to happen. But they also must see its power alive in our lives. That is every bit as much a part of the power of the gospel that God uses to save. And so we see the proper flow of this in verses 5 through 7, the, the way it looked with Paul and the Thessalonian believers, this is the way it should look in our lives. Verse 5, they heard Paul preach the word, and they saw him live the word. Verse 6, having believed, the Thessalonian believers then imitated the way they saw Paul, Silas, and Timothy live. Verse 7, they then became an example to other believers in Macedonia and Achaia to imitate, all of which ultimately points to imitating Christ. So the gospel rang out 
through that region, through the power of the word preached, and through the power of that word changing the way people lived their very lives. I really want us to to feel the full weight of this. Because if we understand and and take this seriously, this, this is sobering. We are commissioned by a resurrected Lord and Master who, who owns us, who bought us with His blood, as it says in Matthew 28 and 19, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We're to go and make disciples by preaching God's Word, His truth, everywhere, in season, out of season, to our neighbors across the street, to the unreached people group on the other side of the world that is yet to hear the gospel. This is God's call on our lives. We don't have the choice to opt out of it. He commands us as our Lord to do this. But not only are we to make disciples by preaching, but we're also to teach them to observe what He has commanded us, to live this truth, which implies they see us living that truth, which gets back to imitating. Greek word translated imitators in verse 6 means exactly that, to, to mimic, to emulate. I asked at the beginning, who, who are you imitating? Well, ultimately, if we're saved, we're to be imitating God in Christ. We're to be God's image bearers. That should make us think of the very beginning of Genesis when God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That means you, me, all of us, we've been created and given a unique purpose for our existence, and that is to image or reflect the glory of God. And although that was marred after the fall, Scripture compares our being saved to God's original creation in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. A word to image God so that his image can be seen by the world through his redeemed, as Paul once again says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So as believers in the power of the gospel, I'm going to say it again, this world should hear us preach Christ and they should see Christ in us so much so that we along with Paul can say, imitate me. But as with the verse I just read, we can only do that as we imitate Christ. Christ ultimately is the one that we are imitating. But I want to clarify a bit of what that means. Like I said at the beginning, we all imitate someone. We all take our our style cues from someone. We admire someone's business acumen or their parenting style or their athletic ability or, or whatever it is and and we mimic that we're we're inspired by that we we think it's cool so we watch them we, we want to learn from them when i was growing up skating in the 80s the biggest thing in skateboarding at the time was uh the bones brigade Powell peralta's skate team guys like tony hawk lance mountain mike mcgill so on and they made a number of videos but by far the the best one really kind of created the whole skate genre, still considered one of the all-time greatest skate videos, as Bones Brigade 3, The Search for Animal Chin. I actually still have it on VHS. I can't watch it. I don't have VCR, but it makes me feel good for some reason just having it. I don't know. But anyway, Steve Cavallaro was a part of that team, and as far as I was concerned, not only was he just an incredible skater, one of the best ever, but he was just so cool. He just had the coolest style on and off his board. By the way, if you've ever worn Vans half cabs, those are named after him. He had the world's first skate shoe, sort of the 
Jordan of skating, if you will. But anyway, on this video on Animal Chain, he had this distinct look that I just totally emulated. I watched that video a gazillion times. I, I mimicked what he did. I went to the store. I tried to find shorts like he wore on the video. I bought the shirts that he wore. I tried to kind of skate like him and just, I just wanted to be just like Cab. I just thought he was so awesome. That might be what we think when we hear, we're to imitate Christ. We probably think of externals, you know, living like Christ, focusing on his works. And certainly that's a part of it, but that's not the primary focus of our imitating Christ. An unsaved person, if you think about it, can live like Christ as far as externals are concerned. You know, you live in poverty, you do a bunch of really good things for people. Many have done exactly that. That's actually the the common liberal, secular view of Christ. He, He did a bunch of good works as our example. We should do the same. But that's not really what this is getting at, because if our focus is only on the externals, then really we're nothing but Pharisees who might look good externally, but internally we're, we're still unchanged, and really it's the internal that really matters. You know, I could, I could try and look and, and skate like Steve Caballero all I wanted, but I wasn't really him, not even close. I might have borne some resemblance externally, at least in my mind, But internally, I was nothing like him. And it's the internal that really defined him, that kind of created the externals. And and that's the point. The externals are a result of the internal. And it's the same with imitating Christ. We're to imitate Christ not just by living like he did, but by dying to sin and self and being resurrected to new life in him with a new heart that no longer beats to to satisfy our own sinful flesh, but to live completely and totally for him, for his glory, to please him, because that's where life and true joy is found, and we want the world to know that. And so in that, we imitate him. The external change happens for sure. If you're truly saved, your life will be impacted. Like that student said earlier, if if it's true, it should impact your life. But that's not just because we're trying to live like Jesus, but it's because, as Paul said, (coughs) excuse me, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that's what's really at the core of imitating Christ. It yields external change that's a result of internal change. But what exactly does imitating look like then? Well, there are a number of ways we can answer that question, but I'm going to focus on three specific truths that are absolutely vital to imitating Christ. The first is, the first truth in imitating Christ is that we are to obey him. Christ said very clearly who his disciples were, who his his true imitators were, so to speak. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Christ didn't just say, do good works and live like me. He said, if we're truly his, we will imitate him in a complete lifestyle of obedience to his word as we love him. We're made alive in him and we love him and the proof is that we will know, live, and obey his word. And so we're right back to the internal motivating the external, which immediately dovetails into the second truth of what imitating Christ must look like, and that is holiness. When it comes to imitating Christ, obeying his word is primary, and of course to obey it, that means that we have to know it, which is why God's word must be absolutely central in the life 
of the church, both individually and corporately. Imitating Christ means being transformed by the Word from the inside out, like we just talked about. And being transformed by the Word means growing in holiness. As it says in 1 Peter 1, 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God speaking. And he goes on to say in chapter 2, it's the word that does this work in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. God is holy, thus we, his obedient children, are to be holy. God takes this very seriously, and so must we. For example, we, we see how seriously he takes this in his striking down Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5, for lying to the Spirit about their giving. You know, one of the most interesting things about that event in the early church was the, the result, the, the impact it had on the surrounding unbelievers. As it goes on to say in verse 13, but none of the rest dared to associate with, uh, with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. In other words, the seriousness of God's holiness alive in his church was clear, not just to everyone inside the church, but to everyone outside the church as well. As it goes on to say, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard about this event. You know, something I find encouraging as this culture falls deeper into the, the pit of irrationality as, as we just continue to reject anything and everything having to do with God and His Word. And although some, sadly, churches and believers are, are joining the party those who are remaining faithful are increasingly being marginalized and hated by our culture. And you might say, why do you find that encouraging? I don't find that very encouraging. Because one of the reasons we're being marginalized and hated is because we take God's word seriously. We take sin seriously. We take holiness seriously. That's what we should be known for. Not cold judgmentalism, but holding fast to the truth and love, no matter the cost, as faithful witnesses to the world. We're to imitate God in Christ to the world. And one of the primary attributes of God, the one who saved us, is holiness. Now, speaking of the attributes of God, in case we're thinking, you know, how can this be? We can't be holy like God is holy. That's impossible. We should know that theologians split God's attributes be between what they call incommunicable attributes in other words, we, we don't share in them, we can't share in them, and communicable attributes, and that is we do share in those. So since we can't share in God's incommunicable attributes, God doesn't command us to do them. God nowhere says, you know, be omniscient as I am omniscient. Be all-knowing as I am all-knowing. We can't do that, so he doesn't command us to do that. But when it comes to his communicable attributes, he does command us to be holy as he is holy, and so we must be. Of course, we'll never be holy exactly as he is, but it means we better be taking holiness seriously in our lives, and we need to be growing in it. To imitate Christ is to be holy. Which leads to the third truth that's vital to imitating Christ, and that is to imitate John the Baptist. And that might sound funny when... Why wouldn't I say, well, to imitate Christ, we should imitate Christ. Why do we have to bring John the Baptist into the matter? 
Well, the reason is Christ himself pointed to John the Baptist as the greatest man ever born of a woman. That means he would be a pretty good guy to look to and, and imitate. Christ said that in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's quite a statement considering we have no record of John the Baptist doing any miracles like Moses, Elijah, Elisha. He never fought any battles like Gideon or Joshua. He wasn't a, a king after God's own heart like David. You know, wouldn't they be more qualified for that title? Christ says no. So what did he do to be so great? John 1.36, he pointed, he lived to point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was his entire ministry. John the Baptist was the greatest of prophets, the greatest man ever to live, not because he was wealthy or powerful or popular or built a successful ministry. He was the greatest because he heralded the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sins of the world. But despite that most important of callings, Christ went on to say, after he was the greatest man ever born, verse 11, yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Is this double speak? No, of course not. He was indeed greater than all the Old Testament prophets because he personally participated in the fulfillment of what they had merely anticipated from a distance. In other words, he actually saw the Messiah. The other guys just prophesied about his coming. He actually got to see the Messiah. He baptized him. He was there when the dove descended on him. That's really cool. Yet, he didn't see his ultimate fulfillment. He died before Christ's death and resurrection. But all of us, after the cross and the resurrection, we enjoy the even greater privilege of the full understanding and experience of the atoning work of Christ in a way that even John the Baptist never did. We have an even greater perspective than John the Baptist. And so as such a privileged people, we must be living to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you want to imitate Christ? Live like John the Baptist, not for yourself, not for this world, but to boldly proclaim to everyone, everywhere, no matter the consequences, that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, of course, we can't forget that Christ himself, who we are ultimately imitating, did exactly that. As it says in Mark 1.15, Christ said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And remember, this whole point of imitation, of imitating Christ, ultimately is to live to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and our very lives being a witness to that truth preached so that people can be saved from eternal death and enter into eternal life and fellowship in him so that they can make other disciples. That's the whole point of all this. So those are three vital truths of, of what it means to, to imitate Christ. All good important stuff, I, I hope helpful, but there's one other issue I'd, I'd like to address, and that is that we might want to do this, but often don't. Maybe we do well sometimes, but not others. That's why we have to remember, just as Paul said, the gospel preached had come in power through the Holy Spirit, so too the gospel lived out is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I really want to emphasize this because sometimes church cannot feel that way. Sometimes, sometimes church can almost feel like the law. 
You know, a lot of times sermons or, or Christian books or just the Christian life, it can just seem like this never-ending list of, of things to do. And, and so we can respond to a message like this and just think, okay, so um, I'm supposed to imitate Christ to the world by obeying his word, being holy, pointing to Christ like John the Baptist. All the while, I need to be a good husband, wife, parent, friend, worker, and so on. And, and, and we want to do that. And maybe we are in many ways, but at the same time, we also might feel like we're not doing enough. And we also, I have convers- I've had conversations recently with people. We're just tired. We're tired from life. We're tired from feeling like we're never doing enough. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the Christian life is to be about. The gospel is where we find rest, remembering that we're saved because of Christ and through Christ, not because of us and what we do. At the same time, like we've been talking about, the gospel isn't cheap grace either. It makes real demands on our lives, like obeying, holiness, witnessing, making disciples. But rather than hearing that and feeling like the takeaway is just, I guess I just need to try harder, I would say no. I think really what we need to do is to depend more on the power of the Spirit in our lives so that the gospel can do its work through us. That doesn't mean we just sit around waiting for something magical to happen. We, we choose to read the Bible and to pray and to be a regular part of a local church body because those are the means that God uses to empower us, to do His work through us. But the point is, ultimately, this is His work, not ours. So the Christian life, in some sense, is just a life of constantly being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the Word out. That's, that's very important theology. Because the Holy Spirit's fully God, the third person of the Trinity. He shares all the attributes of God. So as God, the Spirit's influence in our lives will be to bring a God-like character or atmosphere to whatever situation He's in. Because the Spirit is God, He's truth. The word He wrote is truth. He will guide us in the truth. He will bring the mind to the truth. Excuse me, bring the truth to our minds as we live to serve Him. Because he's God, he'll convict us of sin and make us holy like he is. Because his ministry is to glorify Christ. When he's alive in us, he will point to Christ. So we will point to Christ. It's the power of the Spirit in us that does those things. Again, primarily through prioritizing word, prayer, and the church. But the problem is often we don't experience that important theology in our lives. That's a real problem for many of us. We, we want to serve Christ in the power of the Spirit, yet the craziness of life just seems to, to choke that out, and we don't know what to do at times. And if that's you, I understand. Believe me, I understand. I get it. And, and part of the answer to that our relate, living our relationship in Christ, living in the power of the Spirit, is to remember that that's not built on emotion. You know, we don't, we don't spend time in the Word, or excuse me, we do spend time in the Word, whether we feel like it or not, because that's what we are supposed to do. We have to do it. That's our lifeline. And I would encourage you in that. Don't be guided by your emotion. If we only work, go to work or work out when we want to, we're not going to do either of those things very often. But mature people, go to work anyway, whether you feel like it or not, because that's what you need to do. You work out anyway, whether you feel like it or not, because it's good for you. That's what you're supposed to do. It's the same in the faith. But it means to be a mature Christian. We're not just guided by our emotion. We do the things that we're supposed to, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley. Our emotion shouldn't be determining what it is that we're doing We do it anyway, and I think some of us need to hear that. That's important. But I don't want to leave you there. 
There's more than that. So I just want to encourage you in, in one other way to live this life under the power of the Spirit, to imitate Christ, and this is so important, and that is we must delight in God in Christ. We must delight in God in Christ. For so many of us, it's, just, it's so easy to, to read our Bibles before work and pray, and then we go to work and we, and we work hard and we try and raise our kids and to do well and be an example of Christ and a witness and to be a good spouse and, and friend and be involved in ministry. And in all of that, we forget to just simply delight in God for who He is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, written hundreds of years ago to raise kids in Christ, has 107 questions and answers. Great resource if you never, never used it. But if you just memorize the first one, I think you'll be helped greatly. Many of you are familiar with this. The first question asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's our, what's our purpose in life? Why were we created? What gives us our, our greatest joy and satisfaction? Answer, to glorify God. And we go, oh yeah, we, we know that. We say that all the time. We pray that all the time. It's like a mantra. Yeah, yeah, glorify God. Everything we do, glorify God. That's not the full answer, though. The full answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How often we forget that second part. We do all the right things as disciples of Christ, yet we still often end up depressed or anxious or worried or confused or distracted or maybe even angry because we just forgot to simply enjoy Him, to delight in Him for who He is. Listen to what God's Word says about this. Psalm 16, 8. I've set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Psalm 144, 15. I love this verse. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. God is the Lord. God is my Lord. I'm happy. And you know what those verses really are referring to? is worship. It's, it's just simply living a life that constantly delights in our ineffable God who saved us. And the point of this is worship, delighting in God, it's not just for God's benefit. God doesn't need anything. He already owns everything. Talk about the ultimate birthday gift dilemma. What do you get the God who already has everything? Well, the answer to that question is worship. Yet unlike anything else we worship, when we delight in the Lord, we benefit too because He draws near to us and we receive more of Him. James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. When we delight in God for who He is and we worship Him and we draw near to Him, not only is He given the glory due to Him, but He actually ministers to us. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. As we delight in him, like John the Baptist said, we have more of him and less of us. And as that happens, we're empowered to preach and imitate Christ whom we delight in to the world. We live in a world of imitation. Everyone's imitating someone. But as God's redeemed, we must imitate the Lord of our lives who has saved us. And that imitation, through his ongoing power, should be so obvious to the world that after spending time with us, they should both 
hear Christ and the gospel and they should see him in us because it's just who we are. We can't help it. We live to obey his word, to strive to be holy as he is holy, to continually point to him. But we do all of that in the power of the Spirit. And as we live in his power, guided by him and his word, through the ups and downs of this life, we don't do it just out of dry duty, but because we continually delight in him, the one who has saved us and made us his children full of him, full of that joy, the joy of knowing him. We imitate him to the world. Let's pray. Our great God, we, we just stand in awe and worship of you, God. We just worship you with our whole beings. And God, as we just talked about it, I just pray that we would leave today full of your word and your spirit to live on mission to live on mission to proclaim your truth and to live on mission to live your truth full of your spirit inside our homes, outside of our homes, continually dependent on you as we delight in you. We thank you for this work in our lives. It is all your work, and so it's all your glory. Amen.